So we've got two competing camps in the field of people who say, no, no, there's nothing to worry about, it's going to be fine. And then the other side saying, actually, it's going to be a big one. So we've got five years to like make sure we're okay. So we know there's an active season and a less active season. So right now, at the moment, we're in a less active season, we're at solar minimum. Uh-huh. But we're just seeing the start of the next solar cycle. So we know that in about three or four years' time, there'll be an active period, um, very roughly. But we can't predict that. So if we understood better how the sun's magnetic field changes in time, we could predict the seasons. Um, there's some people that you know say, oh, it'll be a very low, it won't be very active. There are other physicists who put together a fancy model of the sun. And um, even though last cycle was not very active, we're going to predict a really big one for next time. Welcome to the Earth Ideas podcast. Interviews with academics, scientists, and journalists about their areas of research. Subscribe now, wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so uh, lectures are all online, so I record them a week or or so in advance. And yeah, so I've got an amateur YouTube setup, (laughs) how I see it. As do I. (laughs) As you can see everything by me. Yeah, you wouldn't want, um, I wouldn't be a very good YouTuber, but I've got all the stuff now, so maybe I should, I don't know. <laughs> oh, wow. Are you yeah. finding it really challenging with students, like with it all being all online? It's definitely different. Um, recording videos instead of lectures is a completely different skill set, it turns out. Um, right. You know, when you're lecturing, you prepare some material, you go in, but then it's like a... Uh, free form you know you you perform in front of them and so you write things on the board you talk to them you can look at them and you can say oh you're asleep or you're excited or you're confused or so you get right. you get a feedback on what you're saying and you can modify yeah. it as you're going through a video is much more like a tv program you know you just you need a script and you need to stick to it and you need to um, present your material as clearly as you can and there's no feedback so you know um I think the average lecturer who's used to preparing some notes and then using their own knowledge to kind of flesh it out in the classroom and just discuss it, that's yeah. very different to doing a video. You know, um, What you really want as a physicist or a mathematician is a whiteboard and a pen and to do some maths. Do you think anything will sort of stick around after we're back to doing everything in person? Like, I mean, especially I feel like universities are going to go like the in-person benefits of at university is so much higher than what a lot of people are talking about from working from home right so it it seems like there's going to be more of a rush to get students back into into classrooms but do you think some stuff will stick around i don't know yeah i hope so i actually think the videos are good for certain topics right if you're doing um a lecture which is just about you know moving um, conveying information so mm. if I'm teaching solar physics there's really nice videos of the sun um, taken by telescopes in space and you can you know see the solar flares and and sunspots and stuff mm. that stuff's all great via video because I can narrate a video of all these different um, images and and that's that's great there's no you know mm. I can save that and then I've done it once and I never have to do it again and the students can watch it as many times as they want and I can use that every year going forwards mm. I think that one of the hardest things students are finding is is the lack of interaction, right? They are, I speak to my tutees and, and the people in um, my project students and stuff, and 
it's like it's very frustrating for them. I just sat in their bedrooms um, watching videos <laughs> and um, it's, it's very isolating and, you know, I don't think they feel like they're... Um, I've actually had two students say they missed the library, which I, I didn't think was going to be such a big thing, but I do understand, you know, that they they had a separate space from their bedroom that was mm -hmm. quiet and mm -hmm. had the atmosphere of I'm studying, I'm learning, mm -hmm. and they don't have that anymore. And now they're forced to, you know, sit on their bed or sit at a small desk in, a, in their little student room mm -hmm. um, and halls. And you just think, yeah, I get that. I don't, I don't think that's a very good way to study, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. You're at risk of being do. interrupted by beer at any point, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, <clears throat> and you know you have noisy neighbors and stuff right the person yeah. living above you or to your left or right might not know that you're working then or may not care and yeah. maybe playing their guitar or you know or whatever else so yeah. um, and a really big part of going to uni for like new students this year is networking right is meeting other people who are going to be your colleagues in the future or just making friends if you're an undergrad like oh, i can't imagine how I think if I was going this year, I may have just deferred. Has that been a problem? Um, I don't. I wasn't that involved in admissions. Mm. What often there is the sort of headline figures, which is you know we um, we admitted slightly more students this year than last year, but not not fantastically more. Mm. So it doesn't seem to have had a negative effect in terms of raw numbers. But you know whether that's because you know a whole bunch of people deferred to next year and then a whole other bunch of people got their grades that they didn't think they were going to get and so have decided to take advantage of that and just go for it i, I don't know yeah um, yeah but we haven't we haven't seen a, cha a massive change in numbers i know other universities have so i know the russell group like the you know oxbridge and imperial and ucl and all that i think they've seen a big boost of numbers um mm. So it must have affected, it's gone the other way, right? People haven't said, oh, I'll stay away. They said, oh, I can't get a job. Or, I mean, what's the point right. of having a gap year if you're going to spend it sat in your bedroom in your mum's house, you know? Yeah, yeah, very well, true. I may as well go, I can't earn money, so I may as well go to university virtually and get a yeah. year ahead uh, in terms of, you know, getting a job eventually. So, yeah, yeah. Everybody's doing everything virtually, so I may as well yeah. start studying. Yeah, that's so true. Well, um, I haven't even said thank you. Thank you so much oh. Rob, for, for coming on. Like usually that was really interesting. Usually, um, you know, we're talking about people's research uh, as well as sort of their teaching. So um, how, how has COVID sort of affected your research? Because I suppose with studying space and, and you know, our local solar system, your probes and satellites that you feed the data off they're already out there right and they're not going to get coronavirus so <laughs> yeah so i mean in terms of the stuff that i do day to day it's almost i wouldn't say beneficial but it's almost beneficial in that i'm working from home everything's virtual and when i was in my office people come and bother you you know they knock on the door and say oh can i just ask you this question that doesn't happen anymore so if i just turn off my email and uh, say i'm busy then i can sit here and do my research and get a lot done so it's been quite productive. Mm. Um, and yeah, you're right that the satellites and spacecraft are already up there. So that there have been some bumps for the projects that are not finished. So, you know, um, uh, I work on a few future missions as well. And, you know, the labs where they're being constructed 
or tested are had to close for some period of time and so you know there's been delays to a lot of projects and delays mm. will mean budget overruns because they're still playing paying the engineers and they're still buying the parts so mm. you know um well, i guess we don't know how it's going to play out yet but you know the budget for the space agency for next year might have to be a bit different than it was going to be but that's that's up to the government to to figure out right um yeah yeah so, what, where the priorities are yeah 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 and you know these are ongoing projects that are international that we're committed to and um if we if we back out of them then um uh that's at our own reputational risk right you know it, it's probably it's probably to our benefit just to pay our share right we're not going to pay everything because it's an international project but but mm -hmm. whatever the cost overrun is we should pay our share of because that's how you do big international projects you know yeah um, yeah that's how we do space stuff as humans right yeah well you ha i mean that's exactly right so um even nasa you know the richest space agency in the world still collaborates with other countries to get some missions done because they're just so difficult mm. so expensive so it's it's definitely never almost never one person or one country doing something right it's a it's a big right. international collaboration is that something that we kind of left behind in the the space race age um or even then were people sort of collaborating anyway uh, you, you are right it's it's something that's happened over time so you know um to begin with i guess in the the 50s and 60s everything was a national priority right so you know america had uh, was inventing rockets and um you know nasa was about to start and and so that was very militaristic and it was focused on um ussr and the cold war and the space race and mm. you know the uk had a role in that that, that we don't publicize very well you know the uk had its own rocket um that was launched and and you know launched several things into space there there were satellites launched from the uk into space back or at least from british controlled territories mm. um and so the uk is the only nation in the world to have had the capability to launch things into space independently that has given it up <laughs> so you know our skylark rocket was was a british invention that launched satellites into space and then we stopped building them and just gave up doing it and now i mean for for a reason and that the european space agency was becoming a thing and so the, the uk government said well great we'll pay our fees our dues to the european space agency and they'll launch rockets for us so okay so think, was that during the sort of um formation of the eu and uh, and the yeah, sort of so coming together the, of those powers yeah that was the 70s and 80s kind of period and then in the 90s the european space agency became a more coherent thing and since you know the mid 90s onwards the european space agency has been a um you know first rate international space agency that you know um builds yeah, massive rockets that ariane 5 and so on you know uh, and so, launches uh, yeah 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 are the uk gonna pull out of it in brexit is that part of the brexit negotiations thankfully not so the european space agency although it's got european in the title has nothing to do with the eu it's just mm -hmm. a separate body in fact there are, uh, you know, Canada is an associate member of the European Space Agency. So it's, okay. it's a bit like Eurovision. You don't really have to be in Europe <laughs> to be a member. You just okay. pay and turn up, then you can join in. Um, so, That's cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah, if you ever watch European Space Agency presentations or go on the website, there's all the little flags at the bottom. And, you know, you recognise most of them as European countries and then some other ones pop up. And you're like, hmm, I didn't know Canada was, was uh, one of those. But, yeah, there you go. 
That's um, cool. Okay, that's nice. And these are what your um, missions that you're working on are there with the European Space Agency? Yes, yes. So um, my my big mission at the moment is Stellar Orbiter. So um, I don't know how much you know about that, but um, it's a, a medium size um, European Space Agency mission. So it, everything in space is the names are weird, right? Medium. What does that mean? Well, it's still really expensive, right? It's like half a million, uh, half a billion, sorry, uh, euros. So it's a big mission. Mm. Um, it was launched at the start of this year um, and its mission is to go and look at the sun um, and so it's going uh, inside the orbit of Mercury eventually and it's got cameras on board to take photos of the sun in, in various different ways to, to look at how the sun um, evolves over time and it's going to tilt its orbit out of the plane so if you imagine the sun and all the planets in a disk like in a plane mm -hmm. so the orbiter is going to go out of that plane in orbit like this so that it can see the north and the south pole of the sun. So we'll get the first ever photographs of the north and south pole of the sun um, from Solar Orbiter. I didn't realize the sun had poles. So, yeah. okay, so that's to do with its magnets, right? It's magnetic. Well, so there's there's two kinds of pole, right? There's there's the fact that the sun and planets are all spheres that rotate. So you have, you have a pole in the sense that the, the sun is rotating round about an axis. Mm -hmm. And then yes, it has a magnetic field as well. And um, the magnetic field of the sun is a big mystery that's actually very important. So it, um, a bit like the Earth, it has a magnetic field that's a bit like a bar magnet, right? It, it goes out of the North Pole, around and in back through the South Pole, so making these kind of loops like this. Mm. But the sun's magnetic field flips over every 11 years, roughly, in, in the solar cycle. So sunspots appear on the surface of the sun, which are these um, dark patches that are made of very, very intense magnetic field. And over five years, they appear at the equator, drift towards the poles, or sorry, drift, so appear in the middle and drift towards the equator, and other bits drift towards the poles. And the, through that process of moving the magnetic field around, the entire magnetic field flips over. And so we can observe that on the surface, but we don't really know exactly how that happens. So it's, mm. a, it's a really massive part of the sun that we don't understand. And it's very important because sunspots are the places where solar flares happen most of the time and where coronal mass ejections happen. So these, these massive explosions that shoot off tons of gas out into the solar system. And that's what causes us space weather. So mm -hmm. it's seeing the north and south pole of the sun will help us understand the magnetic field of the sun, which will help us understand space weather, which might help us, you know, um, protect ourselves against the radiation and, and um, geomagnetic storms and other things that happen because of space weather. Okay. So it's, it's a long process. Don't expect results tomorrow, right? <laughs> There's a science mission, so you know, in five or ten years' time, there'll be some exciting papers about <laughs> about yeah. these things. But yeah. that's the yeah. that's the end. That's one of the end goals of the mission. So. Oh right. So in so yeah, when we talk about space weather, we're talking about what's going on in the sun and how it affects sort of like the 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 solar system around it, mm -hmm. right? And these these sunspots and coronal mass ejections, they're they're the events that happen. Mm -hmm. And so, right, so by this work that you're doing is trying to sort of understand the patterns and, 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 and better predict when these events might happen. Yeah, so I mean, um, weather on the Earth, we have a weather forecasting service, right, that mm. we want to know whether we need a coat tomorrow or an umbrella or you know, maybe we just stay at home because it's so awful. <laughs> um, <laughs> or if it's going to be sunny, we'll all go to the beach, right? So it's that... That's the, we want the same thing for space. So you know the weather that we experience here is predictable in the sense that 
we understand a bit about how the air moves around and how mm -hmm. um, we can model that. And then if we take some observations, we can put the observations of the model together and, and try to predict the future. Mm -hmm. The same thing we want to do for space weather, right? The, in the space, weather is, is the winds that um, blow against the earth and the radiation that comes with them sometimes um, because that wind from the sun, the solar wind, is coming along and it's pushing against the Earth's magnetic field. So, you know, um, if you have two magnets and you try and push them together, right, they, they repel each other. Mm. So something similar happens in space. The, the sun has a magnetic field that comes out in the solar wind, and the Earth has a magnetic field, and they push against each other. And it's not very strong, you know, we don't experience that, but it's enough to deflect the solar wind around the Earth. Um, so that our magnetic field protects us, a bit from the solar wind yeah. but it also means we have um geomagnetic storms so that if the solar wind pressure if that wind from the sun changes rapidly it squashes the earth's magnetic field when you have a rapidly changing magnetic field you get an electric current so a geomagnetic storm is just a big electric current in space that makes an electric current here on the ground um, and that electric current on the ground goes through the power grid because you know before humans existed it would have gone through the crust of the earth and no one would have noticed mm -hmm. but we have covered the earth in this nice long conducting metal wires so the electric current prefers to travel through that so it does but the problem is we designed the system to carry the current that we made not the current that's coming from space so it yeah. tends to trip the safety features on the on the electric grid and cause blackouts and, and things like that mm -hmm. um, and that's so, why yeah. we want to know when is it going to happen because I, right. so in the same way you were saying about we know when it's going to be sunny and when it's going to be raining based on weather forecasts mm -hmm. but obviously also we have seasons we we know it's going to be colder in the winter mm -hmm. um depending on where you are in the planet and so what you're studying will help us understand that that magnetic shift which is kind of like the sun's season that's exactly right yeah so uh, actually both of them so if we understood better how the sun's magnetic field changes in time we could predict the season so we know there's an active season and a less active season oh, so right wow. now at the moment we're in a less active season where it's solar minimum uh -huh. but we're just seeing the start of the next solar cycle so we know that in about three or four years time there'll be an active period um, very roughly but we can't predict that so you know throughout this year there have been all the solar physicists have been making their predictions for the next five years so if you go on yeah. twitter and follow some solar physicists you can see they're all making their predictions and um there's some people that you know say oh it'll be a very low it won't be very active last time mm -hmm. wasn't very active so next time won't be very active that's the that's the approach of like yesterday was sunny so today will probably be sunny right okay. there are other physicists who are using you know um advanced data analysis techniques that say um you know we can We've put together a fancy model of the sun and um, even though last cycle was not very active we're going to predict a really big one for next time so we've got two competing camps in the field of people mm. who say no no there's nothing to worry about it's going to be fine and then the other side saying actually it's going to be a big one so we've got five years to like make sure we're okay <laughs> but that's like saying okay well yesterday it's sunny today it's sunny tomorrow it's going to be sunny but also oh it's going to rain sometime and usually yeah, when it's right. sunny well, for so, a long period of time boom. Yeah, so, <laughs> exactly well, but that's the thing right if you base your weather forecast on what the weather was like yesterday you get it right a lot of the time it's mm. actually a pretty good forecast the problem is it doesn't catch when you have a change and when you have a change it's the thing you really want to know mm -hmm. so you know who knows we'll be right we have to wait <laughs> five years and see you know um but, but it's quite, that's, that's kind of where we are in terms of the long-term forecasting but there's also mm -hmm. short-term forecasting right so 
you know, we have a weather forecast um, that's accurate for like two or three days into the future, roughly uh, at the moment uh, for, for terrestrial weather. Mm-hmm. And we want the same thing for space weather. At the moment, we have the forecast for space weather. And I'm, you know, apologies to the Met Office who do the forecast, but it really isn't that great. Like, <laughs> we, we can't forecast solar flares at all, really. We just, we just say there is a chance of a solar flare happening based on the magnetic field we see in the sun. And it's mm-hmm. a rough kind of percentage. Um, and we don't really forecast coronal mass ejections before they happen. So the, the explosions that release this big bubble of gas out into space we can't really predict them. Once they happen, we can track them coming towards the Earth mm-hmm. and calculate the arrival time. And that takes, if it's a normal speed one, it takes about three days to get to the Earth. So you might okay. get two days warning. Okay. But the problem is the normal speed ones, that's like just a normal storm, right? It's good to know, but it's not actually dangerous stuff. Okay. The, the really dangerous ones are the ones that go very quickly because they're very energetic. Um, so you know, what's considered like the the worst case scenario for a coronal mass ejection is one that would leave the sun and then arrive at the earth in about 17 hours. Oh, right. The, the problem is it takes, um, you know, four or five hours to process the data to tell that it's coming. So you actually only really get, maybe if you're lucky, 12 hours warning right. that this really massive thing is coming. So, and that's the problem, right? If you If you say to the national grid, you've got 12 hours, there's going to be a big geomagnetic storm. They say, oh, well, it's too late. We've already sent all our, we've already given all our engineers their schedule for tomorrow. We can't do anything. National oh. Grid says, we want five days warning of a coronal mass ejection so that we can do stuff, which is, that's practical, right? That's their time scale for changing things to make them safe. So we need to have a forecast for CMEs that's five days into the future. And we're very far off that at the moment. So that's, right. this is another goal of Solar Orbiter, right? Is to to link together what's happening on the sun to what leaves the sun and comes and hits the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we understand that better, we'll make better models and then we'll make better forecasts. And maybe one day in 10 or 20 years time, we'll have a five day forecast of, of space weather. That means that we can um, you know, adjust the, the national grid to be prepared. And mm-hmm. I, I should put this in context of, you know, it all sounds very dramatic. Oh, massive explosions and the, there might be a blackout and all this. But actually, you know, we've lived without a space weather forecast, you know, for forever until now. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's not like we're all we're all um, experiencing awful outcomes because of space weather. Mm. The problem is um, the nature of how we use technology and how we use space is changing. And so we're becoming more and more dependent on it. So, you know, in... 1989, there was a huge um, space weather event that knocked out power in Canada, uh, in Quebec, a, a region of Canada for a while. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, that was a major thing at the time, but, but the satellites that were in space at the time were also affected. The thing is, in 1989, only people with a, um, you know, a car sat phone <laughs> cared, which is, that it was them and the military, and that was it, and no one else knew, right? Yeah, yeah. But if, but if that happened today... And you, you know, you had a blackout of satellites for a couple of days. I think it would be an absolute disaster, right? You know, no one knows how to read a map anymore. You right. Just your, you just get your phone <laughs> you out, you put it on out. your car, and you say, "I'm going there." And if that didn't work for a couple of days, you know, I think uh, there would be an impact, right? Yeah, that um, would be. I mean, so, I was going to ask. So obviously, you're talking about the national grid. You're talking about the hmm. UK, and earlier we were talking about how a lot of things more international and i wanted to ask um you know is this is this awareness is this like 
data processing to prepare for this kind of thing happening on a wider scale but how come it just took out quebec how 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 come it happens so locally so that that's a, a geographic thing so the currents that flow are stronger where the magnetic field is stronger uh -huh. so the northern magnetic pole is actually just north of canada so canada is one of the places that gets affected by space weather the most um okay. so the, the closer you are to the north the northern magnetic pole the worse the effects are uh, on okay. average i mean there's there's also some localization right so just like a big storm will have uh, like if it's a hurricane you know you've got like the eye wall which is where mm. the most intense winds are and so where that makes landfall is where the most damage is geomagnetic storms are similar in that they have a what's called a substorm in them which is where the most intense current flows and that substorm is localized to maybe a, a few hundred to a thousand kilometers right. somewhere somewhere in the world um and we can't we can't forecast that either at the moment right it just it just is where it is yeah so right, if we had a better okay. model we could forecast that maybe but so in 1989 that substorm was above canada and the reason quebec blacked out again is is a not an accident but a um an unexpected design fault right so they quebec has a um um hydroelectric dam that provides most of its power mm -hmm. and that connects to a big um, long trunk line of um, electricity cables that runs north-south through Quebec and so what happened was the substorm was above one of these transformers in this power line and it knocked mm -hmm. it out and then the safety systems um, kicked in and the next transformer along said oh I've got too much current flowing through me that's unsafe I'm going to turn off so it turned off and then the next one did and then the next one did and the next one did and so this the whole power line just unzipped turning itself off it took about 90 seconds from the first one turning off until only the transformer next to the hydroelectric dam was still running. And that one can't turn off because it's attached to a dam that has water flowing through it. And there's, it's making electricity through, through water motions. Mm -hmm. You can't stop it. So the electricity mm -hmm. has to go somewhere. It went through that transformer and just melted it. The transformer was completely destroyed. And, and that meant the, the dam was cut off from the power grid. So there was just no electricity. Right, okay. But it doesn't pose a danger to life or anything, right? No, not directly. So, I mean, if you're in it's... space, if you're an astronaut, there's radiation that is definitely um, a problem. <laughs> but that's mm -hmm. that's a very, very small number of people, right? For, for most of us who are here on the ground, um, it's extremely unlikely that you would you would die from space weather or be injured, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. something that affects the power grid, satellites, and, and, and the radio, basically. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a very, very small amount of evidence in sort of obscure Russian medical journals about studies to do with um, pacemakers because, you know, if your heart is attached to an electronic device right. and the electric field around you changes, you might experience something. And also actually to do with things like um, migraines and, and depression because um, there's actually quite a strong electric field between your toes and your head. Mm -hmm. you know, there's a there's a we you know it doesn't ever affect us right because we're, we're our biology is used to this it exists but yeah, the geomagnetic storm yeah the geomagnetic storm changes that electric field so again it's not it's not clear that um all there of this is, is some, very fringe, yeah. fringe science but but right. you know there's some there's some evidence of more reports of migraine more reports of depression and more reports of pacemaker problems during severe magnetic storms Right. There's also reports of things like um, whale strandings and pigeons getting lost. And so 
you know, oh, that makes sense. Animals that are sensitive to the magnetic field of the Earth get confused when there are mm. geomagnetic storms. That's the theory. Now, you know, I'm not a biologist, and I think the evidence is a bit, um, you know, we need to, we'd need to do more studies to be sure about that. But right. but it's possible that it directly affects people. You know, right. can it be linked to any deaths? No, I don't think so. Like, you know, there's no there's no real evidence of people dying because of space weather. Yeah, um, yeah. It's more the but, indirect sort of yeah like you're saying gps not working but so i I, you know we're not going to be waking up in some sort of zombie apocalypse or anything like that it it happens in quite a small area and it and and we have the controversy there is um you know the storm that happened in 1989 that knocked out power in quebec Mm. it also has some effects in sweden um so it is a global thing it's just um the strongest effects are in one place yeah um, okay and that, and and you know there are other there have been other storms since and before that we've also studied but the, the biggest recorded storm uh, was actually the first recorded um space weather event which is called the carrington event from 1859 okay. so um um that event was actually the first observation of a solar flare because um you know victorian scientists in london and germany and, and other places around the world were looking at the sun through their telescopes and they saw Richard Carrington, who was in London, you know, saw this big flash of white light. Um, And about uh, a day later, the magnetic field of the earth went crazy, which they were measuring in Greenwich. And they put it together that this flash of light on the sun had caused the change in the magnetic field of the earth. And so that was the first um, true linking of the sun to the earth in terms of um, geomagnetic storms. Right. We now know that to see a white flash like that of light means it must have been a huge flare. Whoa. So, and one is, hasn't happened like that for almost well, two hundred years. This is where it gets difficult, right? You have to start doing statistics, <laughs> and it's it's very difficult to know because the observations made by Carrington and his contemporaries, um, they may have been exaggerating, right? They may have been overexcited. It's not the exaggeration so much; it's just that. All they were doing was looking through a telescope with their eyes. These uh-huh. days we measure flares and we actually categorize them by the X-rays they produce, which there was no way for Carrington to, to measure, right? So mm-hmm. we don't really know how it would stack up against modern measurements of flares. All we can do is sort of extrapolate from his observations. So his observations were very good, right? He did the best he could at the time mm. as, as detailed notes. And, and there have been papers trying to reconstruct from his notes, you know, what what we think might have happened and those reconstructions say yes this flare was huge it's probably the biggest flare that we've ever recorded um and so the associated cme that caused the geomagnetic field to change a day later was probably also one of the biggest ever recorded but there were no spacecraft to make measurements of it so we don't know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there were measurements of the magnetic field of the earth so we do know the geomagnetic storm caused by that that event was huge um one of the biggest ever recorded but again that's a if you want to to look back beyond the record of, of magnetic fields made so the magnetic field of the earth has been measured for about 200 years now okay um so we've got about 200 years of data but if you want to go back beyond that and say was this carrington event you know a once in a million years event or a once in a hundred years event and we've just been lucky and haven't seen one for 200 years that's really hard so what people do is they measure radioactive isotopes in tree rings and ice cores because 
when you have these the radiation from the solar flares hits the earth it makes different isotopes of, of different atoms in the atmosphere that eventually come down to the ground and get locked in the trees and the ice oh wow so, okay. so yeah so there are people that study ice cores from antarctica and they measure the isotopes of, of beryllium and stuff that are uh, other chemicals that are in in the in the ice cores um and they try and estimate the space weather based on that and, <laughs> that's amazing yeah, i know it's wild and um <laughs> in in that sense the carrington event isn't that uncommon right like they mm -hmm. they would say they were bigger events like over the last twenty thousand years it's one of the bigger events but it's not the biggest so um but that's very again that's we're extrapolating a lot from a very small data set if you see what i mean mm -hmm. that has a lot of effects in it that we don't understand so mm -hmm. it's it's really really hard to tell from that whether that's that's true or not Mm -hmm. um, and so the Carrington event is is what we call the reasonable worst case scenario because we've seen it happen. We have an estimate of what its effects were, um, and we know that you know at at minimum it's a one in two hundred year event. If you see what I mean, because it happened mm -hmm. once. But, so the problem with statistics or, or with data like this, when you do statistics, statistics, is if you see something once, you actually don't know how common it is. You need to see something three or four times before you can actually really estimate its probability properly yeah time so yeah so we don't we don't really know we know it's possible um but so but no one then like no one you know normal like not studying it noticed right whereas now if something like that happened yeah so the general like, population so there were some things that were noticed so the aurora was visible all over the world so there are paintings of the aurora um where you can see like a caribbean island and a ship and then the aurora oh and, my you know, that, gosh that's really real right you you wouldn't have seen that for 50 years or something like no no one currently living in the caribbean has probably ever seen the aurora yeah. at home yeah but on that for a couple of days around that event that did happen um and i, I can't imagine the theories you know mm -hmm. for what they figured I, I was going on so there's lots of newspaper reports about it right you can read the newspapers from 1859 and they're like um it, there was a beautiful light in the sky and everyone was very happy to see it and a little confused and there, there actually are some newspaper articles that say you know this is an effect from space like the the reporters in 1859 not all of them but some of them managed to go and find a, a scientist and and um get the information from them and, and interpret it as correctly as they could at the time so it, it was pretty right. amazing um the other thing that happened is um they just laid big transatlantic telegraph cables mm -hmm. so you could send a telegraph from the uk to america and they the way they worked was um and they had a big battery and then the operator had that little metal thing right that you go do 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 with to send the telegraph in morse code mm. um uh and so what happened was they they found that they could disconnect the batteries and still send telegraphs because there was just enough current flowing through the wire <laughs> from the geomagnetic storm they didn't need a power supply also oh, it's some... like the whole earth the whole planet's like mm -hmm. vibrating with energy yeah well there's there's a big current exact a big electrical current that's flowing all the way around the earth and mm. normally it would just go through the oceans and the crust but if you lay nice copper cables down then that's the most conductive thing and so the electricity flows through that mm. um so you know we spent the last hundred years covering the world in beautiful conductors that uh that current would like to flow through but mm. And you know the grid is designed to to handle stray currents like that 
But the question is, if it's a one in a thousand year or one in 200 year events, have you designed it for that? Mm. And the answer is probably not. But mm. what's the worst that could happen? Well, there'd be a blackout for a while. So the, the thing that's really, okay, now we're getting into um, uh, like the fringe territory again, but what happened with the dam in Quebec is an interesting example because we also, in this country, we have nuclear power plants, right? And just like mm -hmm. a hydroelectric dam, you can't turn them off, at least not rapidly. So if yeah, we have a it's situation, a matter of opinion. <laughs> yeah. So if you yeah. have a situation like happened in Quebec, mm. um, then there are safety issues around nuclear power. And you know, what do you do with the power station um, when you disconnect it from the grid? You know, you're, you. Yeah. There are ways to handle that. It's. I'm not saying there's going to be a nuclear explosion, but but it's not quite as simple. Like with a gas power station, like, ah, turn the gas off, no problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> with a nuclear mm -hmm. power station, you can't do that, right? It's on. So just the management of that is a bit more tricky. And, and so um, you do, it, it is worth being prepared for this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there are parts of the world where nuclear power stations are not that far away from where people live, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, France is almost entirely powered by nuclear power. So there's yeah. lots of nuclear power stations there. Um, right. And, you know, we've, we've seen with um, the Fukushima um, disaster in Japan right after the tsunami that um, nuclear disasters are not something that is impossible right you know Chernobyl um, Fukushima all these things have happened and, and we should we should just bear that in mind and, mm. and be prepared mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you said earlier about it, like it affecting satellites it, on a sort of wider scale is it mm -hmm. because they are um, further out or is it just because of how many there are sort of yeah, covering so the, for satellites it's not the electric current that's the problem it's radiation so we haven't really spoken about radiation but you know solar right. flares are these intense bursts of energy and so we classify them based on x-rays which is a kind of radiation but mm -hmm. they also produce other radiation as well and the coronal mass ejections that that travel out very rapidly from the sun also create radiation so they're they're traveling so fast they're traveling million um millions of kilometers an hour and they're traveling so fast that they pick up the gas that's in front of them and it sort of reflects off them as they're moving out and then shoots off very fast and so it becomes radiation well okay right so, so um solar flares and coronal mass ejections make a lot of radiation geomagnetic storms the current that's flowing in space that causes the current on the ground that's also made up of particles in space and so some of those get accelerated to very high speed as well and become radiation right and our satellites are sitting out there in space and so they're affected by all of these three kinds of radiation sometimes simultaneously so um it, there are radiation monitors on satellites and the range of radiation that you get is staggering right the the background radiation is is here mm -hmm. then the peak radiation you can get in a space weather event is a million times more than the background so <sighs> you, you can't just say oh it's okay we'll will manage it you have uh. to prepare for it because it's so much more intense that it starts um weakening the actual material that the satellite is made of right so the uh -huh. the computer chips are semiconductors so they're made up of insulators and and metals and the radiation comes in and it, it charges up the insulators and then you get sparks eff effectively that move through the inside of the satellites and just melt the electronics <laughs> so so, because I always picture what radiation does to, you know, living mm. life, right? And it just kind of like, I don't, well, it destroys it, right? Melts it, cells are going crazy all over the place. Yes. What it, happens exactly to... Exactly the same thing happens. Right. Sorry, go ahead. 
Yeah, yeah, like exactly the same thing happens in the satellite, right? So the satellite doesn't have DNA. So for like you or me, um, you know, if we were exposed to that very intense level of radiation, it would be very bad for us, and we would get radiation sickness and maybe die. Um, the reason that happens, as I said, is because the radiation hits your cells and it breaks apart the molecules inside your body in your cells, and your cells die. Mm. Um, or if it doesn't kill you, you might get cancer because you know it mutates the cells and they they replicate in a bad way, and then you've got cancer, right? Mm. So I mean, satellites can't get cancer, but they um, the same thing happens to them, even though they're not made of cells. You know, they're made of metals and plastics and, and things. Mm. But um, the same thing happens, right? The radiation comes in, it hits the atoms inside those materials, and it moves them, um, and and that's bad. <laughs> that's just bad yeah. for the material. So yeah. if you put plastic in space and it's exposed to radiation, it becomes really brittle, about breaking. And if you put metals in space, and then there's, if you put two pieces of metal like this with a gap between them, mm-hmm. they will charge up differently because of the radiation. And then you'll get a, a spark that goes between the, the bits of metal. Mm. So. So satellite design is a really interesting bit of engineering because you don't just have to consider uh, making sure it doesn't fall apart when it's launched and how it's going to work. You also have to consider, well, I can't allow there to be um, big differences in the materials it's made of that might make electric currents flow because of the radiation. So it's, mm. it's a it's a very tough engineering challenge to build a satellite, actually. Mm. Um, but there, there are lots of satellites up there now, right? Mm-hmm. It's quite a busy, busy Yeah, there's several space. thousand satellites, several thousand active um, big satellites and many, many millions of little bits of junk, right, floating around. Um, so the, the, the several thousand active satellites all sit there and they get hit by this radiation more or mm. less the same. You know, the, mm. If you think that they are, um, the ones in geostationary orbit, for example, are six Earth radii away from the Earth. So mm. Earth is, to them, looks like this kind of ball in the sky like that. And the sun mm-hmm. is over there somewhere. So if you're in geostationary, pretty much all of the satellites get hit by the same radiation roughly over a day. Right. So, and those are the satellites that we do telecommunications with, right? So if we did have a really, really massive Carrington-style event and the radiation was incredibly intense, then you could potentially damage or disable or destroy um, you know, a very big fraction of those satellites because they're all exposed to it at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on the, here on the ground, you know, the atmosphere protects us from this radiation, right? The, mm-hmm. there's, there's a very thick atmosphere between us and space that most of this radiation gets absorbed by. Right. Um, so we, we do see radiation from the sun on the ground, um, but very rarely. They're called mm-hmm. ground-level events, and there have been... 72 of them since uh about 1900 okay Um, so they're okay then (laughs) well they are part of our background radiation that you know is part of that that whole background radiation that you know uh, we just live live with Mm. um but they are measurable you know they're just rare so Mm. is there any point like out with the satellites that it's going to how are we fitting so many out there? Is it Are they just going to have to start going further and further out? So, I mean, um, space is huge, right? If you think about the whole yeah. surface area of the Earth and you put a thousand things on it, they'd be very far apart. Then you okay. multiply that by the fact that it's six times further away. So you've got this um, ring of satellites that... So the, the real... There is, there is kind of congestion in space, but it's to do with the fact that the satellites in geostationary want to be above specific locations. And that's where people live, right? So if you're in Europe, you all want to put your geostationary satellite above the equator, above Africa, because that's 
how you see it from Europe. So there are particular spots and yeah, and that's just related to where people live. So you know, above America, right. above Europe, and and um, you know other places that have um, high populations that are profitable to put a satellite there. That's where right. you put the satellite. But um, it's not a great concern right now of it being like too much going on or, or satellites crashing in together to get crashing together or anything like that that's a great question so there is something called the kessler effect which is named after a nasa engineer called don kessler who predicted this in the 60s or 70s and um wow. so he said you know we're it, back then in the 60s or 70s they were launching you know maybe a hundred satellites or something but um he said if we keep launching them like this and we let junk fall off our rockets and sometimes right, our yeah. rockets explode then this, there will come a point where the junk starts hitting other junk and making more junk. And once that happens, you have a cascade that continues. And oh that's, that's, the film, that's the film Gravity, right? With uh, um, uh, Sandra Bullock <sighs> and right. um, George Clooney. Anyway, but the, that, film, that film is basically the, the Kessler effect in action of space junk hitting other space junk. It's like the great uh, garbage patch in the ocean. Um, exactly. And right, so, okay. So there is a risk of that happening. At the moment, the forecast for space junk is maybe somewhere in like the 2040s or, or 2050s, we would get to the Kessler effect. But there's been a okay. big international effort to reduce space junk. So there's no binding laws um, or there's very, very few binding laws in space. So it's really like the... Um, no man's land. Yeah. The, the new no man's land. Yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah. Um, but one of the few international agreements there are that it's not binding, but everyone's trying to do it, mm -hmm. is to reduce space junk. So what that means is when you launch something, apart from the satellite that stays in space, everything else has to fall back down and burn up in the atmosphere. Okay. And then when your satellite is done, it has to either come into the atmosphere and burn up or move away into some graveyard orbit that no one wants to use for anything else. And more or less, people are trying to do that. Mm -hmm. So space junk, mm -hmm. it's not decreasing at the moment, but it's also not massively increasing. So, mm -hmm. you know, that... as long as as long as we stick to those, as long as we stick to that, it should be OK. But it's kind it of like landfilling way. something or incinerating it. But is, mm -hmm. that, is, yeah. is that quite, uh, speaking as someone who's always mm. thinking about environmental destruction, is that bad for our top level layer? Um, um, I mean, the top of the like atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a good question. The top of the atmosphere is hit by meteorites every day all the time. So okay. you can you can actually see if you have a radar, you can see the meteorites burning up in the atmosphere all the time. They're, they're shooting stars, right? Just little bits of dust, tiny little bits that go through the upper atmosphere. Mm. So that happens. There's millions of those every day. And, um, you know, the upper atmosphere actually has measurable quantities of metal in it just from these mm. asteroids, uh, meteorites, I should say. So our space junk does add to that, but it's not, I don't think it's going to cause a major problem. We'd have to put mm. a lot more stuff in space before it was really... Um, I feel like maybe we're at the time now, you know, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution where they started using fossil fuels and, oh, you know, well, it's just a tiny bit and stuff happens all the time. And <laughs> then, you know, in a couple hundred years, it'll be like, oh, God, <laughs> you know, why didn't we recycle or something? Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's a good point. And... Um, you know, the way space is being used for satellites is very, very different now than it was 20 years ago. You know, you've got to think mm. about SpaceX putting constellations of thousands of satellites into orbit. That's, there are something like about 2,000 operational satellites at the moment, but Elon Musk 
launched 30,000 more. So it's not like a small increase. He is putting 15 times the total number of satellites. That's what he's wow. put in a patent for anyway, right? Right. He may or may not, he, you know, he himself has said, oh, I'm not actually going to do that. That's just to, like, test the water and show what's possible. Right. But, but, but who knows? He definitely has plans to launch hundreds, right? So, yeah. So it's it's so the space wow. junk thing for that is a real problem because mm. you know, if you if you fill up the low Earth orbit um, just above the atmosphere with all these satellites, even if they're carefully managed and and they don't break apart, there's still this massively increased risk of that happening. Mm. So it's mm. yeah, How we're definitely you... in that wild west period of like you know, like you said, we're just building satellites like we were just building cars and at some point we might decide it this is a terrible idea and it will be too late to do something about it but um, <laughs> don't yeah. say too late don't say too late <laughs> well so the good the good news is if it's especially if it's low earth orbit so below um five or six hundred kilometers altitude mm. things don't stay there for very long right there is atmospheric drag that brings them down and over over a period of time they will burn up so mm. geostationary mm. is a different problem once you're in geostationary you're there forever unless mm. you move yourself so that's a different that's a different problem but but in mm. low earth orbit at least even if there is a disaster um of space junk it would fix itself over time mm. um, not a very short time right it'd probably take 50 years but it would you know on the scale of human life it might be disappointing but the next generation would be able to do satellites so <laughs> yeah yeah that can fix it <laughs> how, how do you sort of feel about elon musk and um the sort of growing private companies in the space industry you know more attention is sometimes paid to spacex than to nasa now right yeah it's interesting it's um i have mixed feelings so i think it's great that industry can take over some of the things that the national space agencies were doing because mm -hmm. it frees up that money to or that capacity in the space agency to do other things mm -hmm. and it is right to to try and turn these things into um businesses because that gives them some sustainability and it means that we're not just doing this for fun if you sort of mean it. intellectual mm -hmm. investigation is great mm -hmm. but at some point you can say we've done enough of that let's move on to something else mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. whereas if it is a ongoing business that has that is profitable then it will continue and there's some reason to do it you know into the future um, yeah. So I do think space as a business is is a good thing, and I I think Elon Musk is a very inspiring um, kind of character who has big big ambitions and big ideas, and that is yeah, that's and makes them needed. happen. It's mad. Yeah, which is very impressive. Yeah. On the other hand, he's also you know he's a bit of a caricature and a cartoonish figure sometimes, and um, he is the kind of person who does stuff and then asks permission rather mm -hmm. than, um, you know, making sure it was the right thing to do to begin with. Um, so, you know, many innovators are like that because you need to have that drive and ambition to, to, um, to get things done. On the other hand, it, it's not very fair or equal. So, you know, if we're thinking about um, once you, if he does put 10,000 satellites in low Earth orbit, for example, mm. no one else can use those, those orbits because he's already got them. It's mm -hmm, just a bit like mm -hmm. squatting, right? You say, I'm, I've got my satellite there, so you can't have it. Mm -hmm. So there, there mm -hmm. is a kind of like a, you know, web domain squatting, right? I register the domain name of thousands and thousands of domain names for like 10p each. Mm 
yeah. then some business comes along and wants that name well now i'm going to charge them thousands of pounds for it you can right. do the same thing in space by saying i'm going to launch loads of cheap satellites into all these orbits and they're mine now mm-hmm. you want to use this orbit you're going to have to pay me or you know so right so it is kind happen. of like a, a a little move from socialism almost to to capitalizing on on space space yeah def- definitely so uh, until 10 or 20 years ago space was a national playground right you had to be a nation with the space agency to be there and so yeah i wouldn't yeah. say it was socialist but it was it was contr- it was the use of it was defined by what the nations wanted rather than what individuals wanted yep yep um whereas now yeah it's moving more towards individualism in the sense of um, individual companies with very specific desires for customers can yeah. can um uh do that so yeah I, I feel i feel okay about elon musk i think just because of his work with solar city and tesla i feel like he's a smart guy you know he's looking at problems as a whole and he knows that it, you know sustainability is important and the running of certain things that we have put in place is you know it is bad overall in the long run but i do worry as you were saying that he will make way he will carve a path out and he will change things and change the landscape and then some some more people will come along um and it will be open for play then for whoever yeah. i think is... that's right but i mean i'll give you an example so there's um uh because there's so little regulation in space right there's there's the outer mm. space treaty at the un and that's about it and all that really says is don't touch my stuff Right? If yeah. it's my satellite, you're not allowed to touch it. <clears throat> yeah. And we're supposed to help yeah. each other. It's, it's a bit like the rules of deep sea. Like, you know, if a boat is in distress, you go and help them no matter who you are. It's the same yeah, as space. Yeah. Like, if my satellite has a problem, you're supposed to help me. But that, that's all it says. That, that's the rules. There's nothing else. Um, oh, wow. And so the problem is, uh, because there's no international regulation coordination, you get things like the, national, the international astronomy community is spending nearly a trillion dollars is that right? No, sorry, I'm massively exposing this. A billion um, dollars on something called the Square Kilometre Array, SKA, which uh-huh. is this massive radio telescope. It's going to make the best pictures of the distant universe in radio ever made. That's, you know, they want to um, look at the Big Bang and, and look at dark matter and look at black holes and galaxies and all this massively mm-hmm. cool science. Mm-hmm. But it's a radio telescope. So if you fill the sky with thousands of satellites that emit radio, it's a massive problem right they've purposely built ska in south africa and australia in the middle of big deserts where there are no people to keep Uh it away from mobile phones and you know when a plane flies overhead that's a real problem for them so like they you know they're like they try to put them away from um yeah away from the the common um uh air traffic routes right so Astronomy, ground-based astronomy, has a real problem with with SpaceX filling the sky with thousands of satellites because until now you could look at patches of sky away from satellites, or if a, if a satellite went across your field of view, it was just like one little trail over there, and you know hopefully it wasn't near the thing you were looking at. Mm. But when you see the SpaceX um, satellites go through the field of view, it's like a massive uh, fleet of satellites kind of across your field of view, making a whole load of stripes. Right. And so, you know. I'm not a, I'm not that kind of astronomer and you know there are ways you can deal with that it's not the end of the world but there's massive international collaborations that are trying to benefit the world and do science mm-hmm. that uh you know if it had been a a government project 
there would be a way for those scientists to go to the government, like in the UK, SKA headquarters is in the UK, um, they, have, they lobby the government and they would say, no, no, you can't launch all those satellites, you'll ruin our experiment. And the mm -hmm, UK government mm -hmm. may or may not listen, but at least there's a mechanism. Whereas there is no mechanism to stop SpaceX from launching those satellites, right? He is a private individual with his own rocket and his own satellites, and he is licensed by the US government to launch them. So that's it. Like, mm. other than putting sanctions on the US government or refusing to buy SpaceX products, there's nothing we can do as scientists to, to stop that. Who has he applied to for the patent for all of these satellites? It's, the US government? Yeah, it's all in terms of the US, right? So, right. so um, even though the, the sky is an international thing, right? If I launch something in space, it will fly over your country. It just has yeah. to be by physics. Um, so even though it's this international thing, it, it's regulated, each nation regulates their own launching. So, you know, the and the US government has been very clear on this. Um, the US government wants a big boost in the space industry. And so they're just saying yes to stuff, right? They, they mm -hmm. want their industry to, to, um, to, to lead in space and make money out of space. And so they're just allowing it to do whatever it wants. Um, and that's what I mean by I'm conflicted. I, I think what is happening is great, mostly. Mm. But there are some things that are not great and there's no way for the common person to interact with that to stop it. Mm -hmm. So like, we really are in this Wild West thing. It is like the cowboys come into town and mm -hmm. rob the bank. The question <laughs> is, you know, are we going to accept that for now because in the end we'll have a um, massive new resource or do we um, want to regulate that now and try and be fairer as we're moving on now? Yeah, I feel like it's almost inevitable that we will end up, yeah, creating this 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 newer space age where there's a lot more activity in space and every everybody on Earth has you know I mean we already do but despite having mobile phones but you know that it's a lot more a present in our life and yeah okay. maybe we're at the start of it now where we're trying to say okay how do we make this fairest and 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 best for everybody right. Yeah, and no, I completely agree. And I, I think um, space is a massive frontier that, that we are expanding into. And you know, what we need are well-qualified people who know electronic engineering, mechanical engineering, aerodynamics, um, mm -hmm. data transmission. So we need a lot more people who know about radio and lasers and, and how to transmit data. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's, it's a massively exciting time. Um, and there's a lot of opportunities out there. You know, you don't have to be Elon Musk to to make it in the space race, right? There's mm -hmm. there's companies in the UK that are doing just fine. Surrey Satellites is amazing. Um, Clyde Space is this CubeSat company, right? They build little tiny satellites this big called CubeSats. They were just bought by a big international company. Um, what does a little satellite like that serve? Um, they're mostly for um, technology demonstration learning so students can build oh, them and launch cool. them um so i mean we actually built one at ucl where i used to work they're 20 centimeters long so literally this long 10 centimeters tall so they're this big um you can pick them up and hold them <laughs> and they're just they've got solar panels on a radio at one end and some kind of experimental sensor or thing on the other end so what, what they're used for is to test things so Mm. We, we, when we launched our satellite, we put a sensor on it to try and measure the composition of the upper atmosphere. Mm. Um, other people put on radiation detectors or cameras. So there's, 
a company called Planet Labs, which has hundreds of these CubeSats in orbit with just effectively um, fancy shot-bought cameras, right? Like a DSLR camera that you'd buy to, if you're enthusiastic about photography to go and photograph things. Mm. They've got that in a, in a satellite. They've got hundreds of them looking downwards. And oh. their, their objective is to take a photograph of everywhere on the Earth every day. Um, and they're doing that and they sell it. So you can buy the Planet Labs product and it will help you monitor disasters with farming, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, all kinds of different stuff. So they, yeah. uh, I think they're partnered with Google now or one of the big tech companies anyway in Silicon Valley. They, they've been bought by and, um, you know, it's a, it's a so my, my point is you don't have to be a billionaire and own a massive company to do space. Mm. Um, there's uh, Teesside University is launching its own rockets. There's um, Egglescliff School in Yorkshire is building a satellite and, and going to launch it with a company in um, just outside Newcastle. Uh -huh. So, you know, if you're a teenager at school and you want to do space things, you find it cool, go out there and look. Um, there are things you can do. Um, the Stuff happening. The, Ambersat kit, it's 140 quid to buy a little electronics kit that you do yourself at home. You can do some soldering and you do some programming and put it together and you post it off to Ambersat and they'll launch it into space for you and send you the data. <laughs> so it's, well, where it's, do they launch it to? This is, this is part of everything that's out there that we've talked about. It's effective, I mean, not, not to be mean, having just, just said it was great, it's effectively space junk, right? They launch it into yeah. low Earth orbit about 400 kilometers up. Um, they they chuck them out the side of their satellite and they just kind of drift off for a while and they last for six months and then they're right. in the atmosphere and burn up. Right. So right. it's, it's, you know, um, it's, it's introductory space technology for um, secondary school students and university students at a price Get that's affordable. people excited. Yeah. Um, but yeah. it doesn't last forever, right? It's just a few months of um, yeah. stuff. But that's, that's how you get the, that's what we need in, um, to get that future generation of people to, to, work in these companies to expand into space right we're never yeah. we're never going to get there unless we've got um thousands and thousands of people who know what they're doing working mm. hard and that means you know we need we need people to be interested in space and, and want to do the electronics of satellites and the mechanical design of satellites and mm. building rockets and launching rockets and um, there's operations teams right people don't think about this but solar orbiter uh, we were talking about at the beginning yeah there's a whole operations team in um germany and in spain that operates over water and that's hundreds of people all together that have to know how everything works and make little binary commands and send it from a big radio dish out into deep space yeah. and all this kind of yeah. stuff so it's yeah there's um there's all kinds it's of a big industry mm -hmm. you don't have yeah. to be into electronics right there's lots of different things that that you could be interested in and have a career in space so yeah i mean yeah it sounds like the the future of study of space is, is as well there's so many um areas other than the missions that you currently have going on mm. solar orbiter that we talked about what if you had unlimited funding now and unlimited people to to help you what um sort of one question would you Gosh. ask and it can't be aliens or anything like that let's maybe mm. let's stick to space weather about space weather Hmm. That's what a very difficult know? question. Um, <laughs> gosh, I mean, I, I think we're very, very lucky at the moment in that we have uh, recent missions that are very um, that focus on space weather and that are very interesting. So NASA launched Parker Solar Probe, which is to go very, very close to the sun. Mm. NASA launched the Solar Orbiter. 
who are actually very well covered right now. I think um, if it's space weather-ish, but a scientific investigation, and I'm allowed anything, yeah, absolutely. then I would go the opposite direction. I would say I want to go to the edge of the solar system, right? The, the only spacecraft that have left the solar system are Voyager 1 and 2. And, oh, well, that's, there's perhaps New Horizons and a few other ones that are getting there, but they're the only ones that have made observations of the edge. Like, where does space weather end? Right. right. How far does the sun mm-hmm. impact exactly. reach? Exactly. So there is a, a big international project that's being studied in America called Interstellar Probe mm-hmm. with the idea of actually shooting towards the sun very fast, doing a gravitational slingshot very, very close to the sun to get up massive speed and then just leave the solar system. Wow. And that excites me probably more than any um, future planned mission at the moment. It's mm-hmm. it's not funded. It's not necessarily going to happen. But if you gave me unlimited money and people... You'd make it happen. I, that's what I'd do, because you're going to get closer to the sun than, than Parkinson Probe and find out some things about the sun. Uh-huh. And then for the rest of my lifetime, it's going to be traveling away from the Earth, discovering new things in deep space that have never been seen before. Whoa. And, you know, uh, I think to understand how our star interacts with the gas clouds around us in our galaxy and to eventually maybe measure the winds that have come off other stars and see what they're made of you know right. uh, is that gas cloud outside of the sun made of the same stuff that the sun's made of or does it have organic you asked me not to talk about aliens but you know uh is are these gas clouds rich in organic molecules and, mm. and you know or is it just sterile dust that's a really mm-hmm. massive um, question that you can you can look at it with the telescope, but but going there and actually measuring it uh, in space is important too, right? So, so we don't like our solar system doesn't exist as a sort of island in space. There's it's it's possible that we're interacting with other stars and other solar systems nearby. Yeah, so I mean our our um, our solar system, you know, the solar wind blows out from the sun and somewhere out around the orbit of Pluto or a bit further out, it stops, right? Mm. The, the solar wind slows down and it's, it pushes up against gas and dust that exists outside of, of the sun. Mm-hmm. So that's called the local cloud. So the mm-hmm. sun is moving through this cloud of dust. Um, we don't, you know, we've measured it with telescopes, but we've never sampled it. We don't really know, um, you know, we haven't investigated it that, that much detail. Um, mm-hmm. And then there are other stars nearby, right? Our our closest um, star is like four light years away or whatever, and it has its own wind and its own bubble. Whenever, well, I won't say never. In my lifetime, I don't think we're going to go there and measure that star, right? Uh-huh. But we could learn something about the stuff that's between the stars, and that would help us model the environment around the other stars as well. Right. So, that's and a really it, exciting science question that's got, you yeah. know, uh, it, it links to space weather in the sense that, <clears throat> you know, whether the sun is more or less active expands and shrinks this bubble around the sun. Um, yeah. That, and that, that, you know, excludes more or less of the surrounding gas. So, right. Yeah. And, and do, do we theorize that most stars sort of um, play, like do the same thing in terms of, coronal mass ejections and stuff or or different types of stars and different sizes of stars very very different so that's a that's a big and difficult question actually yeah (laughs) yeah we certainly know that other stars have winds because you can see um through telescopes you know some stars seem to have like a bow wave around them 
So you can see the star is here, and then there's like a, a bow wave where the star is moving through the, the gas mm -hmm, around mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. So it must, something must be coming out of it to push that gas out of the way and make the wave. So we think it's very common for stars to have some kind of wind leaving them, right? The, mm -hmm. Just the balance of pressure between the star and space means that there must be winds leaving stars. Whether they have space weather in terms of flares and sunspots and CMEs, mm -hmm. that depends on whether the star has um, a strong magnetic field and a magnetic dynamo that, that flips the magnetic field around like our sun does. Mm -hmm. So we have measured flares and other stars we have measured suns or star spots, I should say, out of the stars. Right. We can't we can't see them. We can't resolve them with the telescope, but we can see the stars brightening and dimming, and you know. So there's there's definitely evidence for that. But how widespread it is, whether there's a common mechanism, um, you know, whether what we see on the sun is typical or not, we we don't really know. Wow. Um, that's that's a different mission. <laughs> that yeah. So there, um, yeah, that's the second that, project. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are plans for a UV telescope in space that doesn't look at the sun, but looks out at all the other stars. The reason to have it in UV is that, um, you know, solar flares and space weather are mostly recorded in X-rays and UV light. So you want it to be in that part of the spectrum rather than visible light, because you'll see more of that activity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that, that has been proposed to the European Space Agency in, in the last couple of years. Um, so it's under review that ESA is currently doing a big review of um, what missions should we do for the next 20 years. Um, it's called Voyage 2050 because it's for the 2050 is like the end point of that that cycle. Yeah. So yeah. who knows, you know, in the next five to ten years we'll find out what missions will be launched between now and 2050 and one of those might be um, a, a star spot, like star weather mission. Yeah. Um, well, some of your students might be running them. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Really I, I, I really hope so. Yeah, absolutely. I, so. Um, I mean, I will also be doing my best to make sure that these missions kind of come about as well, right? I mean, I'm, yeah. I can't influence the European Space Agency that much, but, uh, you know, whenever there's an opportunity to, we, we put in our, in our input and our ideas and say, you know, mm. you really should do this. It'll be great. So Yeah, yeah. It would just be fascinating to know how special is our sun. I mean, we know our planet is special for having the shield that allows us to exist right yeah. and how how special is our sort of solar system our, our sun yeah. so funny that you're like blocking the sun out right now as <laughs> no. we're like talking about it <laughs> this is working from home problem right i mean uh, we, yeah, shouldn't, we yeah. shouldn't complain but uh it's it is a bit difficult sometimes yeah there are yeah. there are ups and downs but um thank you so much for sharing all of that that was um you're very welcome yeah, that was i found that very interesting so um oh i'm glad yeah yeah, that was uh, awesome. yeah, I mean, any anything you want to talk about in the future, let me know. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll, I'll come back in a few years and say, you know, how, how have you, you know, did you propose this thing? How, how have things gotten through? And maybe when a uh, solar orbiter is... Um, yeah, in a year's time or something. So the, the first data release yeah. from solar orbiter just happened, um, but we won't get the really exciting photos for another year or so, just oh, because wow. it's going to take that long for the orbit to reach the right place to take the photos. So... Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, in a year or two, we could have a another conversation about uh, yeah. you know what do we learn from the first couple of orbits of solar orbiter, and, and um, yeah. hopefully there'll be some really exciting videos and pictures to show of of the sun in in close up. Um, oh, I'd love that. Yeah, we can have a catch up. Maybe I'll, I'll know a little bit more by then. We can, yeah, sure. that'd be awesome. Cool. All right. Well, well thank good you. Good everything. See you later. See you later. Bye. Bye.